Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on the treatment of pancreatic cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as pancreatic cancer organizations, which are wonderful resources to you as well. Um, and um, because of your interest in the program today and um, because of everyone trying to spread the word about the program, we have um, over 419 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both um, rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, Japan, uh, New Zealand, Pakistan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really uh, a bit of a global call as well. Um, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is Section Head, Hepatopancreatic so biliary and neuroendocrine cancers, gastrointestinal oncology service. She's Associate Director David M. Rubenstein, Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research. She's also Attending Physician, Member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Professor of Medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. O'Reilly will present an overview of pancreatic cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches and clinical trials. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly. Thank you very much, uh, Carolyn, and good afternoon, everybody, and to our international uh, participants as well. It's really a pleasure to be able to do this. So for the next 10 to 15 minutes, just going to review uh, briefly a little bit of the background about pancreas cancer, uh, discuss sort of the current state of the art, and then spend a few minutes uh, reviewing where the field is going and, and new uh, treatment directions. So I suspect many may be aware that this cancer, pancreas adenocarcinoma we're talking about today, uh, as opposed to neuroendocrine cancer, uh, is on the rise. And there's been a distinct uh, but steady increase in the incidence of this cancer over the last number of years. Not entirely clear why. Uh, part of it may be an adoption of sort of Western lifestyles, not so exercise conscious, uh, some contribution from genetics, which we'll touch on in a couple of minutes, uh, but again, not entirely clear. And this is a fairly sharp distinction to cancers such as breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal, and lung cancer, where the incidence of those malignancies have plateaued in a lot of cases and even started to decline. Uh, so this is a big uh, and important uh, malignancy, and I think it represents a rising sort of public health challenge for now and uh, for the future. A very common question that comes up is, you know, why is this cancer a challenging one uh, and has the reputation that it has? And uh, thankfully, uh, progress is, is certainly being made, but we recognize that there are some unique characteristics of this cancer uh, compared to other malignancies. And some of this relates to the fact that there's what we call uh, a stromal component or uh, an environment component that nurtures 
the uh, pancreas cancer cells and may uh, provide a physical barrier that can inhibit uh, drug delivery. We know on one hand this cancer is quite genetically uh, complex and we know that it's uh, considered a somewhat immune privileged cancer in that the key immune cells, uh, and these days we, we know how important this is from cancers such as melanoma and lung cancer where immune therapies have become entrenched standards. We're not there yet in pancreas cancer. And part of the reason is that some of the key immune activating cells may not be present to the same degree in pancreas cancer as opposed to other malignancies. Nonetheless, there, there are a number of, of very interesting strategies that are underway trying to, to overcome that. So the, the risk factors for pancreas cancer relate to uh, us all getting older. The, the average age of diagnosis in North America is in the early 70s. We do see this malignancy all the way down to 20s, and I think the youngest that uh, I've met was a, a young boy of, of 16. That's extremely rare, uh, but classically 60s, 70s, 80s for this uh, disease. We've talked a little bit about lifestyle considerations uh, being associated with this cancer. People who have had long-standing uh, diabetes and long-standing uh, chronic inflammation in the pancreas or pancreatitis may be at, at higher risk. And then somewhere between 10 to 15% of people may have a genetic context uh, to their disease. And that there's really two categories there. There's the bigger group where we actually don't know what the defined genetic link in a particular family is, although there may be two, three, or sometimes even more members of a family affected by pancreas cancer. And then there's a smaller group where there's a number of well-defined uh, genes that have been identified that are associated with an increased risk of uh, pancreas cancer. And a very uh, important example of that is, is something called hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, uh, which is underpinned by changes in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And again, they're known more for their association with breast and ovary cancer, but in our world, they're very important because it may indicate a family that might be at risk for this disease and other malignancies. And also there are direct applications of new treatment paradigms uh, that would impact uh, those particular individuals. So given uh, the frequency of genetic findings, not this gene or these genes in particular, but a, uh, an array of other genes as well, uh, we are working to, to make it a standard approach to consider genetic testing in the blood, looking at the family lineage or what we call the germline for all people newly diagnosed with this disease and also in a parallel fashion, looking at the genetic makeup of the tumor itself. They, they can be distinct and separate, although they, they may be related. Um, that uh, can have implications, the findings in the tumor itself can also have implications in terms of possible uh, treatment strategies. And just to give an example there, uh, for patients who have uh, genetic mutations in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 or other related genes, a class of drugs called platinum agents may have a, a particular role or experimentally a class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, which are FDA approved in other settings, not yet in pancreas cancer, but we're working hard uh, to facilitate that, uh, may have an application. And then there's a small percentage of individuals that have 
changes in certain genes that are associated with something called Lynch syndrome. And for that uh, group of people, there's a high probability that they may benefit from an immune uh, treatment approach. And again, that's, that's not most people with pancreas cancer, but for those individual settings, these are very important things uh, to be aware of. A common question that comes up and often in the question and answer section is, what do we do if there's uh, pancreas cancer in the family for healthy family members? Are there screening uh, recommendations uh, that we would use? And it really depends on the specific context, but as a, as a general approach, we encourage those people to be active, uh, to have a healthy diet, weight maintenance, not to smoke. That's an important, uh, potentially reversible uh, risk factor for this disease and to be enrolled uh, in certain settings in, in terms of research uh, registries or screening programs depending on, on the particular setting for the individual. So moving now to some of the uh, treatment aspects of this disease, we think broadly of three groups of people with pancreas cancer. About 10 to 15% will have localized disease where the cancer is operable and either an upfront approach of surgery followed by uh, medical treatment or chemotherapy, that's called adjunct treatment, is a standard approach. Or increasingly, there's consideration of what's called neoadjuvant therapy, which is chemotherapy given prior to planned surgery to try and uh, eradicate any microscopic metastasis that could be present and to try and facilitate uh, an optimal uh, surgery. So that's one grouping. A second grouping is, is people, and this is about 30% of people who are diagnosed with this cancer, who have localized disease but it's not operable because of major blood vessel involvement, but there's no obvious metastasis. And then about half of everybody who's diagnosed with this disease will present with metastatic disease, so that's where the cancer has spread. And typically there, uh, the sites of metastasis would include the liver, lungs, the abdominal cavity, something called the peritoneum or membrane, and uh, lymph nodes. And in, in the latter two groups, for the most part, treatment does not involve surgery. Uh, the main uh, role, uh, type of treatment would be medical treatments, chemotherapy, uh, clinical trials, which we'll circle back to in, in a minute. And sometimes for people with localized but not metastatic disease will also include uh, radiation. So just going to highlight a couple of things from the treatment perspective. At our major oncology meeting in the spring, we had important new information uh, pertaining to the group of individuals who are diagnosed with operable pancreas cancer who go on to receive surgery uh, pertaining to what's the best strategy to recommend after their surgery. And for, for fit people, uh, fulfirinox, which is a, a combination of medications, a medication called 5-FU, a vitamin called leucovorin, medication called oxaliplatin, and a medication called arenatecan, that acronym for Fernox, is a designated new standard, which showed, compared to the previous fire standard, showed a reduction in recurrence and more people alive and free of disease at any particular point in time. So, so that's an important uh, practice-changing study. Uh, we 
were a little bit surprised in one way, but in another sense not, because we know that this particular treatment has brought benefits uh, for people with metastatic disease and has been an active uh, program there for a number of years. Uh, so it's nice to see now that it has benefit across the spectrum of, of this disease. So the other major choice for uh, an individual with non-metastatic or metastatic pancreas cancer would be using a gemcitabine-based uh, combination. And in North America, uh, another standard is gemcitabine and a drug called napaclitaxel, also known as a vaccine, and that uh, is a weekly treatment schedule as opposed to fulfirinox, which is given every other week. Uh, fulfirinox requires the insertion of a, a small port that's put into one of the major veins and an individual wear an infusion cartridge uh, for two days. So there's some differences in terms of how it's administered. There's some differences in terms of side effects. But in general, they're both good treatments uh, and aimed at slowing the growth of the cancer, shrinking it where possible, helping with symptoms, and extending life. So that's how they uh, became to be standards. They met certain benchmarks in, in clinical trials. So a few points about clinical trials, and clinical trials, I think, are a critical part of the future and now uh, in terms of trying to make the, the world better uh, for people with pancreas cancer. It's how all our current standards uh, were developed, and it's how we hope to integrate uh, new treatments. There are a number of different types of, of trials. They're what we call therapeutic or treatment-based studies, but other ways of participating as well can be what we call biospecimen uh, studies where uh, blood or tissue is uh, donated or interpreted as part of a, a research study. There's a lot to learn and sometimes we, we learn a lot about why certain treatments work or indeed importantly why certain treatments don't work in particular settings and that can be particularly important in terms of trying to refine a particular approach uh, for a given individual. So Early type studies, uh, which are typically called phase one, are looking at dosing of medications, looking at safety signals, looking to see what's the best schedule, uh, a given drug or combination of medications is administered, and looking to see if there's a signal from the anti-cancer uh, perspective. Of course, that's what we're all ultimately most enthused about, but we ha it has to go through certain safety evaluations first. A mid-phase, often what we call a phase two study, will have identified that signal and look in a specific group of people. So, for example, a group of people with metastatic pancreas cancer who have not had prior treatment to establish what the benchmarks are there. And then a phase three study is, uh, these are usually late stage studies, they're potentially practice changing studies and often will lead to either the a definition of a new standard of care in a particular setting or sometimes an affirmation that the current standard represents uh, the best choice. So there does tend to be a, a lot of opportunities uh, to participate in clinical trials and I think it's an important uh, decision point for patients and families when they're at a juncture in terms of their illness uh, to bring this uh, question to their healthcare team uh, to see if a clinical trial makes sense, if there's one that's a fit. Uh, there are often sort of screening criteria that have to be met, particulars related to the drug or to the type of treatment or to the disease setting uh, that can suggest it would be the right fit or not. 
So just speaking a little bit to where the field is moving in terms of new therapies, we mentioned at the beginning that one of the challenges with pancreas cancer is this sort of stromal component or this environment uh, that uh, is around these, these uh, malignant cells. So there are a number of strategies that are looking to sort of break down that uh, context and to facilitate uh, drug delivery. And uh, there are several of these agents in, in late-stage de development and a couple in phase three trials that will hopefully have some readouts in, in 2019. And to give you an example, uh, a class of drugs called stromal modulation agents, uh, such as PEG-PH20, is being looked at in combination with standard treatment uh, for people with newly diagnosed uh, pancreas cancer. We've had some good signals. We've had some signals that suggest we still have a lot to learn, uh, but this will read out, uh, we hope, next year. Another uh, class of drugs uh, or strategy that's important in pancreas cancer is uh, the context of genetics for this disease. So we talked about at the beginning uh, certain Platinum drugs, oxaliplatin, cisplatin, maybe having a particular role for, for patients with mutations or changes in, in the BRCA and related genes. They are being integrated as part of standard treatment and undergoing a series of trials to consolidate that. We're hoping to have uh, the first PARP inhibitor approved in this setting uh, for people with pancreas cancer after initial treatment in the context of a BRCA1 or BRCA2 uh, mutation uh, next year, so some more to come on that. And then just I'll say a brief couple of words about immune therapy. It's always a very popular uh, question point, understandably, because of all we hear and read about what immune therapy is doing in, in the cancer setting. And I think the key, key points are a small subset of people benefit from uh, checkpoint inhibitors. These are drugs called nivolumab nivolumab or pembrolizumab, uh, to give examples. But major uh, clinical trial or investigational strategies are looking at combination approaches, and that's where I think the money is going to be in, the, in this disease. So combining immune agents together or adding an immune agent to chemotherapy, and there are lots of examples of uh, major studies that are uh, active as we speak uh, that will help us understand where these class of drugs fit in the treatment of, of pancreas cancer. But I think we're certainly optimistic uh, that there's a future there. So I would say, just to sum up here, I think it's an exciting time to be working in pancreas cancer. There's a lot of focus on this disease from the public health perspective, uh, from government funding, I think from industry, from academia. And we remain sort of hopeful and optimistic uh, that meaningful progress is going to accrue uh, in this disease. So I'll stop there and, and thank you and pass it back to, to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was really outstanding and so comprehensive in covering all these different areas. I think people have questions for you during the Q&A and um, really helping us to better understand um, pancreas cancer. So thank you, thank you very much. Um, and our next, next speaker is Dr. Rachna Shroff. And Dr. Shroff, is um, Chief Section of GI Medical Oncology, Associate Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of Arizona Cancer Center in Tucson, Arizona. And Dr. Shroff is going to address managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, 
communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns and managing weight loss and eating hints. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shrove. Thank you very much, Carolyn, and uh, thank you to all of the participants, uh, national and international, and uh, we appreciate everybody's collaboration in trying to better understand and move forward in the fight for pancreas cancer. And thank you, Dr. O'Reilly, for a wonderful introduction and overview in terms of treatment options. Um, So as Carolyn alluded, my job today is going to be to focus on uh, both side effects from cancer therapy as well as symptom management that comes from pancreas cancer, as well as the importance of really keeping an open dialogue with your healthcare team about goals of care, quality of life, and and what is is actively going on in terms of of the disease process and symptoms that arise from treatment. And then I'll finally kind of touch a little bit on weight loss and and suggestions related to uh, diet. Um, So first I will start a little bit with managing side effects from therapy as well as the symptoms from cancer itself. And for those of you who have personal experience or a loved one with pancreas cancer, I'm sure you all have personally witnessed that uh, unfortunately pancreatic cancer can cause a fair amount of of symptoms even at the onset of the disease or as the disease kind of progresses over time. Uh, And those those symptoms really oftentimes depend on the location of the tumor within the pancreas as well as the extent of the disease, meaning is this a localized pancreas cancer versus a metastatic one. Um, And some of them are frankly, very vague in terms of initial presentation. You know, these are not symptoms that patients experience that make you think, oh, my gosh, I have pancreas cancer, as they can be somewhat general in terms of weight loss, fatigue, a lot of things that can be caused by a number of different diseases or other issues. So when we think about pancreas cancer, I always tell my patients that I think of pancreatic, the, the pancreas itself as similar to a fish. It's got a head, a body, and a tail. And the location of the tumor within the pancreas really does play a large part in determining the primary symptoms that patients at least initially present with. Um, so when you have a mass in the head of the pancreas, that is the the front part of the pancreas, and the pancreas is sort of tucked right next to the small intestine, and running right through the head of the pancreas is the main bile duct that drains the entire liver and what we call the biliary tree that runs in the liver. And so as you can imagine, when you have a mass in the head of the pancreas, oftentimes that primary bile duct gets blocked or clogged. And I describe the the biliary system as kind of your body's plumbing. So as you can imagine, when you get a a clog in a pipe, uh, oftentimes that can lead to trouble. And and these these are the patients in whom uh, the bile that is trying to drain from the liver cannot get to the intestine, and as a result, patients become jaundiced. Um, that jaundice itself does not necessarily cause symptoms, except in some patients, you know, you can start to feel fatigue and, and sluggish and, and just not feel exactly right. But jaundice itself uh, can lead to a myriad of other problems, including um, itching all over the body, generalized itching, what we call pruritus, uh, as well as just noticeable changes in the color of the urine and stool of these patients. Uh, in addition, when you have a blockage in your biliary system, the biggest thing that we worry about as healthcare providers is the fact that that is kind of a setup for bacteria to grow within the biliary system, and that can make patients quite sick and can cause what we call sepsis from uh, from an infection within the biliary system. And so sometimes patients present with fever and acute abdominal pain and, and such, and these are all signs and symptoms of the fact that the biliary system could be infected. 
The other main symptom that we always talk about, I would say, with pancreas cancer uh, is pain. And oftentimes when there are, when the mass is located a little bit further back, either in the body or sometimes the tail of the pancreas, well, running right behind the pancreas is the main network of nerves. It kind of runs up and down the arterial system, the aorta, as we call it, uh, behind the pancreas. And when a tumor grows to involve some of those nerves, as you can imagine, it triggers those nerves and sends off pain signals. And as I'm sure you all know, pain management is really an active issue and process that needs to be tackled really from the get-go in terms of diagnosis and moving forward because it can be an ongoing ongoing problem that really waxes and wanes during the course of the disease. Uh, pain is absolutely something that when patients experience it, it can be debilitating, it can affect their overall ability to function, and it can affect just their their ability to be considered for certain types of treatments and clinical trials because when you are in such pain, it is difficult to do basic things like getting out of the house and running errands and doing grocery shopping. So trying to jump on top of that pain management is really essential. Some of the other general symptoms, things like weight loss and fatigue, um, I will touch on some of the weight loss things later on, but you know, these are, again, general things that come from cancer. I can't say that they're specific to pancreatic cancer, uh, but again, I think it's really important that these, co- that these conversations be uh, had with the healthcare team so that we as the healthcare providers can do everything we can to ensure that we're, we're taking a, an integrated approach to the management of these cancer symptoms. Um, there is a multidisciplinary approach to a lot of these symptoms with pain management, nutrition, gastroenterology, uh, supportive care or palliative care, depending on what your institu- what the, your specific cancer center calls it. Uh, and I really do think it's important that the healthcare team be a multi-pronged approach to make sure that we're proactively managing those symptoms. Uh, in terms of side effects from therapy, I mean, this should not be underestimated as well in terms of the impact it has on patients' quality of life. Uh, as Dr. O'Reilly alluded, you know, we, we have made a fair amount of progress, and there are there are a number of uh, chemotherapies as well as, uh, you know, clinical trials and new her- new therapies on the horizon in terms of pancreatic care, pancreatic cancer uh, treatment. And unfortunately, with some of these do come uh, side effects, some of which are immediate and some of which are more cumulative, meaning it's great that patients stay on these therapies for, for longer and longer as time has gone on, but as a result, some of these toxicities that come from these treatments are cumulative and they can get worse as as patients have been on these treatments longer. Uh, again, I think the number one thing to talk about is to, to say that it is really important that you verbalize with your healthcare team the side effects that you're experiencing as you are undergoing pancreas cancer treatment. Uh, it is our responsibility to ask you about those, but at the same time, if there is anything that is new, out of the ordinary, or seemingly worse to you, please do be sure to make sure that your healthcare team knows about those things so that we can try to proactively help. So in terms of the side effects, you know, when we think about the two standard chemotherapy treatment options, which uh, Dr. Riley mentioned, uh, fulfirinox as well as the gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel treatments, that's in the setting of advanced disease. Um, these are traditional, as we call them, chemotherapies. And by that, I mean they have what we, are, what we have come to know over, you know, decades of giving chemotherapy. There are certain side effects that all chemotherapies can cause, and that includes things like fatigue as well as affecting your, your bone marrow um, and its production of the red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. 
Uh, I always tell my patients it's my job as the physician to monitor your blood counts and to make sure that you are aware of how things are going from from uh, in terms of your bone marrow's response to chemotherapies. Uh, but you know, as patients have been are on chemotherapy more and more and longer and longer, it is harder and harder for your bone marrow to respond to and keep up with the production of hemoglobin or red blood cells, uh, white blood cells, and platelet count. And so those are things that we absolutely monitor. And as you know, uh, some of you may have experienced already, there are newer uh, uh, options that we can do in terms of if your white blood cells are low, giving uh, shots uh, that are basically intended to stimulate your bone marrow to make more white blood cells to prevent very low uh, white blood cell counts, which is if you're at a very low, if you have a low white blood cell count, you're at a very high risk of developing what seems like a simple infection becoming kind of a more complicated uh, process. So things like that, uh, we as the healthcare team are responsible to monitor, but things like fatigue, for instance, uh, nausea, diarrhea, oral uh, ulcers, as I call them, or sores in your mouth. Uh, These are things that we can absolutely see with some of the therapies that we give. Uh, And while uh, the the traditional approach is to proactively give uh, anti-nausea medicines to our patients and and such, sometimes I I feel like it can be quite overwhelming and uh, patients don't always know exactly how to take the nausea medicine or whether they should take it empirically versus waiting until they have nausea. And so, again, an, an open line of communication with your health care team to make sure that they have explained their thoughts on uh, giving anti-nausea medicine or using diarrhea medicine uh, is really important. Uh, Fulfirinox, I would say, has a tendency to cause a little bit more of the GI tract side effects. Uh, That would be the the sores in your mouth, the nausea, vomiting, and the diarrhea. Uh, I always, the, the majority of healthcare providers give all of these patients IV anti-nausea medicine, uh, but most of our patients also go home with nausea pills. And I always tell my patients to, to, to be proactive. And the second you start to feel a little bit of nausea or queasiness, to go ahead and, and start taking those nausea pills to try to prevent vomiting. Uh, Additionally, diarrhea, in most patients, we we use kind of over-the-counter loperamide or things like prescription medications um, that we can provide. But again, it is something that I usually tell my patients, the second you start to have diarrhea, please start taking these medications so that we can stay ahead of it. Uh, You know, the big concern with things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, as you can imagine, would be dehydration. And we want to make sure that our patients stay hydrated. Uh, And, you know, while some of that is, is... you know, up to the patient to drink as much liquid as possible. It's a little hard to do that if, if they're having issues with vomiting and diarrhea. Um, and then the the other big issue that I, I always think is important to talk about, with uh, especially from Fulfirinox with the oxaliplatin, uh, as well as with gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel from the nabpaclitaxel, is neuropathy. And neuropathy is that sensation of numbness or tingling, uh, in your hands and feet, it can often, as it as it progresses, it can get to the point where it becomes difficult to button up your clothes or to feel the ground below your feet, and you can you know have difficulty walking with you know tripping or falling on your feet. Um, and the neuropathy from these drugs is cumulative, so it is something that does not necessarily start in the beginning. And as patients are on these chemotherapies longer and longer and receiving more and more oxaliplatin or nabpaclitaxel, it can become more pro- more progressive and more severe. And so uh, the healthcare team usually does ask patients, you know, how are you know, do you have any of these symptoms? 
Does it seem worse to you? Where is it affecting you? But again, being sure to communicate to your healthcare provider if you are starting to notice those symptoms is really important. Uh, while there is some ability to reverse that neuropathy in patients when, when you stop these drugs, I'll be frank, in, in some patients it doesn't always get better, and in some patients it actually gets worse before it gets better, and I do tell my patients that in some patients it, it, it doesn't go away. Uh, and in the setting of chemotherapy that you can be on for a prolonged period of time, we want to make sure we're balancing the side effects with the benefits, and we don't want to have anything that we're giving our patients cause things like disability, because when neuropathy gets severe, it becomes difficult to walk. It, it can be difficult to hold a steering wheel and drive drive a car. So we want to make sure that we are jumping on these symptoms before they get to that point. In terms of management of neuropathy, we can absolutely adjust the doses of uh, chemotherapy. And then there are also medications that can be given, things like uh, gabapentin and, and other things that are used in neuropathy that can come from things like diabetes. There are a number of drugs nowadays that we as, as healthcare providers can offer to patients to try to at least prevent progression and in some patients try to improve that. Uh, but I think the main thing is to, to be on top of it and, and proactive so that we can start to introduce those medications at the right stage. Uh, and then the, the next thing I wanted to touch on is the, the communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. So as I just alluded, it is absolutely imperative that this be a partnership, and we as the healthcare providers need to make sure that we are asking our patients every time we see them about their quality of life uh, and, and trying to do everything we can to improve on it. But we really encourage patients and caregivers to engage with the physicians as well and be sure to tell to tell us exactly what is going on, what the treatment is causing, and what importantly are the goals of care for these for for that patient. Uh, every patient has very different goals of care and personal goals, and we as healthcare team as the healthcare team are not going to presume to know what those goals are. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's really important when a patient tells me, you know, this is a milestone. You know, my daughter's getting married. I'm trying to get to this point. I, I'd I don't want to lose my hair if I can avoid it up until this point. Those types of things, so that we. Can integrate that into our approach and into our care of our patients at, so that we can make sure that that quality of life and that goal is, is, is discussed up front and we can work towards those goals simultaneously. Uh, advanced directives also kind of goes hand in hand with that. So talking to your healthcare team about advanced directives, who your medical power of attorney is, those types of things, so that when you're able to speak for yourself, everything is laid out clearly and, and the healthcare team knows exactly what your wishes are and what your desires are. Uh, and then I will just quickly try to touch a little bit on uh, weight loss, managing weight loss and eating. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I do believe that pancreatic cancer management is a multidisciplinary uh, treat, is a multidisciplinary uh, uh, disease. And so when we talk about weight loss, as as I'm sure some of you know, it is a major issue for a lot of our patients. <coughs> some of that stems simply from the cancer suppressing your appetite and not making you want to eat. Some of it stems, stems from what we call pancreatic insufficiency, which is where the pancreas is not producing the digestive enzymes it should be making as efficiently or as effectively. And as a result, the food that, sh that the patient is eating is not being processed and absorbed and, ex and the nutrition extracted in the, in the way it should be. And as a result, we, people have a hard time kind of keeping weight on and, and taking the benefit of the protein and calories that they're taking in. 
And so to me, having a nutrition or diet, nutritionist or a dietitian involved in the patient care right from the beginning is really critical. Um, it is uh, incredibly helpful to me, given that their expertise, I think, goes beyond you know, the basic oncology medical training that we get. Uh, and they really help us with patients uh, in terms of keeping nutrition logs, doing calorie counts, protein, g- giving them goals for the amount of protein and calories that they should be taking in. Um, the things I do tell my patients is it is just to remember that gaining weight is, is not as important as is to kind of keep weight stable. You know, it, we acknowledge that patients oftentimes lose weight, especially leading up to their diagnosis. And so if we can stabilize that weight loss, that is really goal number one. Any additional weight that we gain back is, is, is a icing on the cake, really. I always tell my patients to focus on protein and calories. Those are the things that really help. You know, pancreas cancer is known to break down your muscle mass um, and, and, and kind of make you feel like you've lost the, the, the strength in your, in your muscles. And so protein really is important here. Uh, and then the other thing I say is a lot of times patients will tell you that they don't feel like they can eat a whole lot in one sitting. Uh, and so I, I remind my patients that that's okay. Don't expect to eat three square meals. Instead, plan to eat, have multiple small meals throughout the day. You know, every hour or two, put a few put a few uh, handfuls of almonds or something, you know, protein-rich in your mouth. And that's really important as well as just staying hydrated, keeping keeping a water bottle with you and kind of keeping that fluid going in. In terms of pancreatic insufficiency, the nutritionist and the uh, healthcare team can really work with patients and provide prescription pancreas enzymes that can hopefully take the place of the enzymes that your pancreas is not able to produce. So that way we can hopefully uh, counter that that effect in terms of weight loss. Uh, so those are so those are a couple small things, but I think the overarching important theme to me is to make sure that there is an open line of communication between the patient caregiver and the healthcare team, so that we can ensure that side effects, symptoms, and quality of life and goals of care are all uh, discussed pretty much at every visit. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Schultz. That was outstanding and really so informative for people who are struggling with some of these issues. You've given people such great tips, and so I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, before we take questions, I want, we want to start thinking of your questions because we're going to take questions in just about two minutes, um, and both our speakers are available for those questions. So um, this is a, wonder, it's a rare opportunity to be able to ask um, you know, your questions um, from independent bodies just to get some information, more information. Um, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services. Um, so Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and um, we provide psychosocial support and counseling. And what does that translate to? We do offer practical and financial assistance. The financial assistance is for people in the United States. All the other assistance, the practical and the counseling services, are for anyone anywhere in the world. Um, we um, offer a chance to speak with one of our social workers um, who are trained in this area, um, both um, on the telephone or online, um, so people can call us and ask such questions as, I'm not sure how to tell my boss I'm going to be out of work. What benefits can I take advantage of? Um, how do I talk to my children? Um, how do I think about this myself? Um, how do I talk to my significant other, my partner, my spouse, um, my family, my parents? How do I tell people? So all of those and so many other questions that you all often have. Um, are what people call us for. You can call us at our 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, we also, of course, run a lot of these education workshops on the, on the 
both on the, they're both simultaneous tele, uh, teleconference webcasts, and we also have um, lots of publications. Now we have 138 um, support groups on all different types of uh, support groups for people with pancreatic cancer, for people who are caregivers of people with pancreatic cancer, for people of all ages, um, for teens who are caregivers, for young adults who are caregivers, so, so um, for parents who are in terms of how they talk to their children about their cancer. So there is a group on so many different topics. And the online groups are, many people find them very helpful because indeed they're not a specific time. They are not time sensitive. They run 24 hours a day. An oncology social worker, one of our staff, does moderate that group. But nevertheless, it means that you're not linked to a particular time and, um, and you actually, um, a lot of people can be in the group and post different help support to each other at all different times of the day and night. So those have become, that's probably our fastest growing program that we have. People seem to like that a great deal. And if that isn't for you, then just talking to someone individually, either on the phone or on, on the, on, on, by email, or actually, um, um, you know, or getting help in any other way that, that would be useful to you. We also have a Cancer Care for Kids program, so we help kids and teens. We also help with children who are usually affected by cancer in their families and really don't quite know how to understand all that's going on, so that's a very helpful thing. And we do now have an app, a meditation app, that many people find helpful because this is a stressful time for everybody, and many people find the app, um, it's a free app download, and um, it, you will be getting information about that as well at the end of the program, and that's a wonderful resource for you as well. So with that all being said, um, we now do have time for questions, and um, I hope you'll um, take advantage of that. You can, and I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to you how to cure for questions. I'm going to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star 1 to ask a question. And we have a question in front of our online participants, and this question is for to start with for Dr. Um, O'Reilly. Um, did I understand correctly that all diagnoses, all all diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, should receive genetic testing no matter age of diagnosis? So, so thanks, uh, Carolyn, and, and thank you uh, to the individual who asked this question. It's a very important question. So I would say this is an area of evolving thinking. We would like to be able to recommend uh, universal testing, so that is every new individual who's diagnosed with this uh, disease to undergo genetic testing. I think we're, we're not there yet for a number of reasons. Partly uh, this is, has to be incorporated into guidelines and we have to sort out issues in terms of reimbursement and also just the important communication of these results. As you might imagine, this is very sensitive information. It's, I would say, very important information for that person and for their family potentially. And there needs to just be very thorough lines of uh, transition of those results to the appropriate individuals and, and their family. And just getting all of that in place is a bigger picture issue uh, that has to uh, to be resolved. But I think as far as possible, uh, that is our, our, our thinking. And uh, Dr. Schroff may like to add on this topic as well, but we would like to be able to do this for, for, for everybody. And at our 
institution for, for now we, we do this mostly on a research basis uh, as we work to, to get this uh, as a standard uh, approach for everybody. Mr. Shroff, would you like to add anything? No, I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. O'Reilly. I mean, the the impetus to do this is, is absolutely huge, just based on some of the things that Dr. O'Reilly went over, but it is a little hard to make it standard of care until it is integrated into clinical practice guidelines. But at, at our institution, at both institutions I've been at, we really do our best to offer genetic testing to pretty much anybody that we can we can get it covered for and or are able to get it paid for. Excellent. Thank you. And um, we have some telephone questions. Um, Crystal, our first question. Thank you. Our first question comes from Tony G. Your line is open. Hi. Yes. If uh, a patient has taken the 5-FU and then is currently on gemcitabine, what would be the next approach if that chemotherapy um, treatment is not um, working? Well, thank you, Tony, for being on the call and for that great question. Um, and um, Dr. O'Reilly, do you want to address that question? Uh, yes, certainly. So that, that's another important question and a very common one that comes up. So uh, the two main approaches, as we've discussed, are, are 5-FU-based or fulfirinox or versions of that or gemcitabine-based combinations. They're the FDA-approved standards. Uh, beyond that, it comes down to the particular person, their setting, and consideration for clinical trials. Uh, I would say that's, as we talked, always an important discussion point, depending on where things are, uh, but particularly in that particular uh, context. The other uh, consideration uh, that we uh, influences how to proceed is how long a person was on a particular treatment and whether it was, for example, in a pre-op setting or in uh, a locally advanced setting and, and the patient's cancer is now metastasized. And sometimes when there's gaps in time, there is a potential to go back to components of prior treatment and uh, revisit, uh, revisit a, a particular approach as, as a third line. But the, the short answer is that there isn't a standard here, uh, and it's, it's, it's clearly a, a discussion based on the context of the person, their prior treatments, uh, their well-being, what trials are available, uh, and where the, where the goals of, of care are, are headed. Thank you. And Dr. Sharp, do you wish to add anything? No, I think, I think Dr. O'Reilly covered it perfectly there. Excellent. And Dr. Roy, could you say something about the fact that you can go back to another, did I hear this correctly, you can go back to another treatment or do you actually move forward to? Um, yes, so, so sometimes, so maybe add some clarification to what I was implying. So say, for example, a person has uh, surgery and uh, then they receive post-operative treatment, adjuvant therapy, and say their cancer sort of behaves itself for two years and then returns. Um, they had had gemcitabine in the post-operative setting. Uh, their cancer didn't progress while they were on that treatment, uh, but grew a couple of years later. Then sometimes we will get clear benefit by going back to a gemcitabine-based approach. So there are a lot of nuances in, in this, but as, as a general principle, it depends on how a person did on, on the original treatment, the duration of time that they were on it, you know, their overall tolerability, 
and the time factor from when their cancer cells were exposed to that particular treatment as to the value of sort of recycling in a way uh, a, a specific combination of drugs. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next question, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Cheryl B. Your line is open. Yes, I had a question about um, if someone is, is it diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and you know it's metastasized, and they they start um, they're diagnosed really at at that point, and they are unable to start. Um, chemotherapy, even though that was recommended because they are now having symptoms of pancreatitis and, um, you know, uh, they, they had to get a liver stent. And so there are all these other complicating medical issues that have come up. And so they've been unable to start chemotherapy. What is recommended during that duration while they're waiting? I mean, is there, because I know that, you know, for example, um, kind of, you know, herbal preparations or things like that are not, you know, many things are not, are contraindicated once a person is on chemotherapy. But while they're in that waiting stage, in a sense, is there nothing that can be done? I realize this is a very broad-based question, but... Excellent. That's an excellent question. And um, Dr. Stroff, do you want to address that to start with? Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I I completely can imagine it is incredibly hard for for patients to wait and feel like they're not doing anything while things like a bilirubin is improving when a biliary stent is placed and, you know, pancreatitis or other other complicating issues that make it difficult to start treatment. Uh, I will say that there are sometimes ways around those things, and it just obviously has to be a case-by-case basis. But in terms of starting things like chemotherapy, there are certain chemotherapies that you can start with bilirubins that are elevated, not elevated into the tens and twenties and thirties, but that you could consider. And so oftentimes I will tweak or modify the chemotherapy that I'm giving. So if I'm going to start with fulfirinox, the the primary uh, issue in terms of elevated bilirubin within fulfirinox would be the arenotecan, the urea fulfirinox, because that is the one that is metabolized by the liver. And so that's what we get nervous about starting when patient's bilirubin is elevated. And so I'll often look and see if we can start the other two drugs, the 5-FU, um, the vitamin, as Dr. O'Reilly mentioned, leucovorin, as well as the oxaliplatin, and then add in the arenotecan subsequently uh, just so that something is started in terms of therapy. So, and similarly with the gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, there are other things that you can tweak and adjust. So in terms of having to wait due to that issue, I, I think there are certain ways to kind of go around that so that we do feel like we're starting something in, in, a, in a faster manner. Uh, outside of the quote unquote traditional approaches with chemotherapy, you know the the short answer is is there are probably a myriad of other things that y- you you have heard about or you know are on internets and blogs and are talked about through integrative medicine centers and, and you know my my answer always to my patients is simply you know I, I don't know I mean that's the short answer we we don't have trials that are mandated by the FDA that looks at those things in the same ways that we've, you know, tested fulfirinox, say, or gemcitabine and napaclitaxel. And so I don't, I I always tell my patients, I cannot say do not do it because I I don't know the reasons not to. (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, in the same way that we get worried about things like chemotherapy, uh, 
uh, overloading the liver in the setting of a high bilirubin, I always worry that some of these things that could be metabolized by the liver could accidentally uh, trigger more issues within the, the within the the liver and, and and or side effects that can come because the liver isn't functioning at 100% while that bilirubin is still going down. So to take all of those things with the same caution, in my opinion, that you would use for chemotherapy. Um, at the same time, if you are at a center that has something like an integrative medicine or integrative oncology program, I am a firm believer in referring my patients to those programs uh, because they do know the data when it comes to some of those uh, complementary integrative alternative approaches and how they may actually fold in nicely to traditional chemotherapy or, or things that can be done safely while you're waiting to start chemotherapy. And so I absolutely try to encourage uh, a, a coordinated consultation with them so that we do feel like uh, we, we're, we're kind of doing something in terms of what per, per what the patient would be interested in. And then the last thing I'll say is, is that is also the time, like I mentioned, in which that we can hopefully work with pain management, palliative care, you know, nutrition, and, and try to tweak and tune up all of the other issues, you know. So those are the times in which I, I tell patients we need to work on you staying as strong as you as possible, you know, taking a short walk every day, uh, working with nutrition to try to stabilize that weight loss, to, uh, uh, trying to work on managing that pancreatic insufficiency and, and improving nutritional abs- absorption of the foods that they're eating. So all of those things, I think, can easily be, be done while waiting to start therapy, whether that be uh, alternative approaches or traditional chemotherapy. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, And Dr. Raleigh, do you wish to add anything? I think that was an extremely thorough and uh, comprehensive answer. And uh, I think to go back to the original question, it's sort of stepwise introduction of treatment in this setting, just as long as there's some safe level of you know, physical functioning uh, with uh, being mindful of just how the major organs are working That's and how they're going to uh, address the, the drugs exactly as, as Dr. Schaff was mentioning. Perhaps a, a, a one additional point to add is somewhat times where this gets in particularly uh, frustrating, if, if, if there isn't a better word to use here, is when we are thinking about a clinical trial and a patient or family are considering it and we're waiting for the bilirubin to get down to under one, for example, and that last little bit can sometimes take a while. And it's always ultimately going to be, I think, a judgment call and discussion with, you know, all interested individuals as to what's the right decision to to be made because if the disease is is sort of getting ahead of, of the individual, sometimes one has to make that decision that maybe that isn't the right thing for that person and, and to move ahead with the, uh, you know, a, a condensed version of, of standard treatment. So, but the, these are these are daily challenges with this disease, and uh, yeah, always, you know, looking to see how we can uh, kind of maximize the here and now to get treatment underway uh, to to the best advantage that we can against the cancer. Thank you, thank you so much. That's really, and um, thank you for that wonderful question. That's really important. Um, and we have another telephone question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Yvonne B. Your line is open. Hi. I really appreciate Cancer Care and all the doctors that show up and volunteer. We really appreciate it. Could you go over again, like, symptoms? Because uh, you wonder, like, like my husband had bladder cancer, and now he doesn't have it anymore. And we're just wondering, you know, like, because his mother died from bladder cancer, not bladder cancer, from uh, pancreatic cancer, and she... You know, she got it and 
I don't know if she had symptoms or not before, but I'd like to know the symptoms in case it does come back and he maybe gets that himself. But do you have any, can you tell us like what to look for, what to be worried about? And did you say that someone has a, a currently pancreatic cancer or, or uh, my husband my husband's mother had died from pancreatic cancer, and she didn't know she had it till she you know was at the end of her 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 uh her her life so you know because he had bladder cancer, we're trying to know because I don't have any way to look up uh i don't have a computer to what symptoms are for pancreatic cancer because we're hearing more and more about pancreatic cancer. Um, and how some people just get it, and they don't—they just don't know if they have it. Do you know? I mean, what are the symptoms so we know what we're we're dealing with? Well, thank you very much. That's an excellent question. Um, and um, Dr. Schroff, do you want to address that? To start with. Sure. Uh, so first off, you're absolutely correct. Uh, it, it is uh, an important question in terms of knowing what what to look for. I will start with with the caveat that a lot of the symptoms for pancreatic cancer are not always specific to pancreatic cancer. So they are symptoms that a, a number of other diseases and processes can cause. Um, I, as I mentioned in, when I was, was giving my initial introduction, pain and jaundice are probably two of the more common ways of presenting. Uh, and again, jaundice would be in the patients who have a mass kind of in the front part or the head of the pancreas that clogs off the bile duct. Um, and then pain is absolutely uh, a typical uh, symptom. Uh, traditionally, when you when you read about it in the textbooks, uh, it would be pain kind of right in the in the middle of the of of the abdomen of of your stomach or your uh, belly area, and it can often radiate or move to the back. Um, and so those are are the classic uh, definitions of the the type of pain that pancreas cancer can produce. But the the honest truth is is that pain can 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 be in the abdomen, it can be on the side, it can be in the back, it can be in a lot of different places. And then the other symptoms that I had mentioned, like a fair amount of fatigue and weight loss, again, as as you can imagine, are not very specific to pancreas cancer since those those can be caused by a number of other things. But, you know, rapid weight loss, unintentional, um, that's a, that's a big uh, red flag for, for anything. I mean, it might not be pancreas cancer, but that is a concern. That's something that you should absolutely go see a physician about. Um, fatigue to the point that you're having a hard time doing your, your day-to-day job, your your chores, your, your that sort of thing. You know, whatever your normal is, if it seems like you're dragging to do those things, that's that's definitely something to talk about with, uh, with a doctor. Um, there are uh, some reports of patients who uh, develop diabetes uh, with uh, as kind of a precursor, if you will, to a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Um, and as you can imagine, that's really just from when you have a mass in your pancreas, the the, uh, the cells that normally produce insulin, your insulin regulation kind of goes out of control, and so your blood sugars start to rise. But again, millions of people have diabetes, and that does not necessarily mean you have pancreatic cancer. So it would have to be, you know, maybe a a mix of some of those symptoms. But of course, anything, I mean, I always tell my patients, anything that seems out of the ordinary, please have a conversation with your primary care doctor or whoever whoever you see regularly so that they can do the appropriate workup based on whatever differential or possible diagnoses they come up with in their head. Thank you. And uh, Dr. O'Reilly, do you wish to add anything? No, I I, I agree with with everything. I I think something that's a change, something that's persistent or progressive, uh, again, the the flag of 
new onset, elevated blood sugars without perhaps a body habitus or lifestyle that would predispose an individual, uh, I think is, is something that, that should raise a signal and, and that's an area where there's a lot of research now being uh, focused on to see if we can get some clues to early detection. And uh, as Dr. Schaff alluded to, and I think uh, the, the caller uh, was asking, is that this is, is one of the huge challenges with this disease is that we don't get these um, normal early warning signs that we have in other uh, malignancies. Uh, nonetheless, I, I think these symptoms, when they occur, out of the ordinary, uh, require evaluation and require continued evaluation because it's not uncommon uh, that symptoms can fluctuate and evolve for six to 12 months, uh, sometimes uh, prior to, to diagnosis. And I think just as we're educating our, our uh, junior colleagues and our uh, primary care colleagues, I think we always have to keep uh, a broad perspective uh, in mind. I want to thank um, both our speakers. You've been phenomenal. Really, just this is an amazing call. We could go on all afternoon. There are more questions, but I want to thank you. I want to thank all of you who've asked such wonderful questions, both online and on the telephone as well. Um, and um, I just want to say a few words in closing about. Um, I know many of you are still have questions, or even if you asked a question, you probably have another question that goes with it. Um, and we do, first of all, want to recommend that you definitely take all your information that you learned from today's program and your questions back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best. They have your records and they can then help you to figure out, okay, how does this fit for me, this information? Um, but, for, but I know many of you like to go to other sources for information. When you get your evaluation for today's program, you will be receiving um, in that evaluation all the resources that... Um, particularly relevant that we may have addressed or mentioned today. And we will include all of the pancreatic cancer organizations because they all have a wonderful um, expert information. I guess I want to just uh, call out to PamCam. They have wonderful materials for you to look at, um, information on their website. It's a very well-respected um, organization, as are all of the others as well. But they particularly have a patient education portal that they really would would be a great place to get some answers to your basic questions as well, or even some of your more complex questions. I also always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, they have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237. You'll be getting that also in your evaluations. And they also have a website, www.cancer.gov. And that website has a live chat feature. And indeed, um, you can actually, that's good for people both in the U.S. and internationally. You can post your question, and their information specialist will go through their database and get you information about, about that. Um, and there, for those of you interested in clinical trials, of course, speak to your healthcare team. But there is clinicaltrials.gov, which also is connected to the others. So you'll be getting all that information again um, in the evaluation that you receive from us. Most importantly, we wouldn't want any one of you to, um, to leave this program feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a lot of support resources, perhaps in your community or in your, in your town or, or where you live. You don't really know anybody else with pancreatic cancer. You now know that there are lots of people with pancreatic cancer and that there are a lot of um, mechanisms to get support and help and to please take advantage of them. And all of them, most of them are free, so do take advantage of those support services that I've mentioned earlier. Um, and um, 
again, I want to thank you all for your uh, participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.